Glad you're here with us as we take week two uh, into the foundations of marriage, okay? Uh, so last week we started just working through um, the idea of what is the core, what is laid at the very bottom of the foundation of a Christian marriage. And so what we discussed was particularly that uh, it means that both spouses um, are pursuing God in kind of being equally yoked and seeking to, uh, to walk with him and not seeking their good in that particular relationship itself. But finding our good in God allows us to actually enjoy our spouse the way that we're supposed to, okay? And uh, if there's one critical thing to remember, that's the summary from last week. This week, we're going to start talking about the mystery of marriage. And this is a series of inverses, okay, that are really related to the gospel broadly. And so I'm not going to be walking through any of the classic marriage texts today, okay? There's a few places in the Bible, 1 Peter 3, Ephesians 5, Genesis 2, that you're all expecting me to go, and we will get there, okay? Uh, those are important places, um, but there's also other important places uh, in Scripture where we can reflect on Christian marriage um, out of what God says about just Christian relationships in general, um, because a Christian marriage ultimately is the place where you find all of these dynamics on steroids, Okay? Um, everything's on steroids. And uh, so uh, it's a particular place where you get to focus and think. Now, um, on your outline today, you'll see that we're going to ask uh, three questions. Some of these themes that we're going to visit are going to be repetitive. Um, if you find it repetitive, um, then I want you to really listen hard um, because it's designed to be what? That wasn't rhetorical. It's designed to be repetitive, okay? Um, and uh, I want you to get something out of this from a few different angles, considering it, weighing what it all can mean for us and its importance for marriage. So before we get started, let me pray for us and we'll get going. Grateful for the morning, the, for the chance to talk about uh, marriages and their health and the ways that we can participate in that. We ask that you would lead us and guide us through this time and help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's no surprise to you to hear that the institution of marriage in our culture has been in a steady decline. You can trace that from the 1950s or 1960s um, and just follow the general statistics. Those are widely available, but divorce rates dramatically increased. The number of children born out of wedlock have dramatically increased. The number of partners who cohabitate prior to marriage if they do even decide ever to marry, has dramatically increased, okay? So all of that points to just the decline of the institution of marriage. Now, when Christians address this, oftentimes they focus upon kind of the sad statistics and numbers um, that are present in the culture, but uh, that's not exactly what we want to do here, okay? Um, there is just, uh, it's good to look at those numbers and to say that there is a general increasing pessimism and wariness about marriage, okay, in the culture. That exists for many different reasons, but we're not going to slice all that up because what we want to focus on is what is the Christian response to that? What do we need to be doing in our own lives, in our own households, uh, in order to respond to that culture of decline? Okay, what can our answer be? So, 
Um, most people kind of out in the broader culture around us don't believe that they have a good shot at building a stable marriage. And they fear the boredom, especially the sexual boredom of being locked into one person. If you were just to follow the general surveys, this is what you will find. This has led to a rise of cohabitation amongst many young adults. This is kind of a common thing. This practice is driven by several widespread assumptions, okay? I'm going to give you three kind of widespread general assumptions, things that I've learned over the years through premarital counseling and also things that you can uh, read in any of the literature that's available. But people will say 50% of marriage ends in divorce, and surely the other 50% aren't that happy. So why in the world would I do this to myself, okay? That's what you'll find, just kind of a casual attitude uh, out there. Second, living together improves your chances. You discover whether you're compatible before you take the plunge. All right, might as well take it for a test drive. A few years if, if, if needed, you know, and see if it works, all right? Third, it's assumed that marriage is a financial drain. Now, the interesting thing is that not just from a theological perspective, but from just simply an empirical perspective, sociologists have showed that all three of those points are exactly wrong, okay? Uh, so it's important to, um, to kind of look at those things and look at cultural arguments and then say, yeah, well, how exactly have we gotten there as a culture where we're not even looking at empirical evidence? The evidence actually points otherwise, but these things are broadly shared. And so then that informs what kind of response we need to be making as a church, okay? Our witness inside of that culture. So uh, given these myths and the changes in the cultural landscape, it's a critical time for, uh, for Christians to reflect in two ways. And we're gonna do two things across these weeks. Theological reflection, that is what scripture says, and practical reflection, okay? We need to be doing both, okay? So we need to be doing the practical things, like, how do you work out conflicts, okay? But when we talk about that as Christians, that's never free from theology, okay? And so we need to be doing both. We need to be rigorously engaged. Because we got all this decline, we have various mer uh, definitions of what marriage is. And so we've got to work really hard to build that definition clearly and say, hey, here's where we're going. So uh, we need to do all of this recognizing that we have an intriguing opportunity to speak to the culture around us by building communities with healthy marriages, okay? That is something that we can all contribute to, whether single or married, okay? We can all contribute to that type of community that fosters good and healthy marriages. It's one of the critical things that we need to be doing in a culture where marriage is in decline. And so this morning, I'd like to speak about three dynamics that undergird the healthy marriage, okay? They're going to be these inverse dynamics that the gospel creates, and we'll ask three questions. First question is, what is the definition of love? How do you define that? Second one is, what is the key to unity as two live together as one? You know, that sounds so romantic, and then when you get into the details of it, it's... Um, uh, it, let's just say it can be tremendously challenging. Uh, number three, what is the path to personal uh, persona fulfillment? No, that should have been personal fulfillment. Um, so what is the path to that as we look at that as a Christian? So first question, what is the definition of love in a Christian marriage? Uh, you can join me in 1 John uh, chapter 4. Especially over my years in Washington, I was asked to do more weddings and then more baptisms following those weddings than I can really count. 
And, uh, and so I developed a series of wedding homilies, okay? And at a wedding, I never preached for more than eight minutes. I never found it helpful. One time I went to a wedding and two people preached for over 40 minutes each, okay? And uh, because really there was only one thing to say at a wedding, and that was God's call upon this couple now to love one another, okay? So I developed four or five sermons that said the same thing, love one another. And one of my favorite passages to use in that exhortation were these verses from 1 John 4. So let me read them for you. 1 John 4, verses 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, this is broad general Christian teaching, right? Is it talking about husbands and wives directly? Not directly, but does it apply to husbands and wives? Absolutely, okay? That, beloved, we are to love one another as we have been loved by God, all right? And so, as Christians, as we reflect on a definition of love, where we need to begin is with that definition of what it means to be loved by God. Now, we also need to do some cultural work. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas is a theologian at Duke. He's an interesting guy, and he has a very famous quote about marriage that I alluded to last week. Um, but he talks about the cultural expectations that we bring to marriage that often erode it away at the foundations before we even get started. This is what he says. He says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. Now, what does that sound like? Remember all these things we've been discussing over the weeks, the cultural changes, where things are about our self-fulfillment and self-actualization, okay? And so people bring all of that to marriage, and marriage is about the self-fulfillment ethic where they're going to become whole and happy through this relationship. All right? Now listen to what Harawa says. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. <laughs> what he's particularly driving at is that when we bring this fulfillment and wholeness, that we're going to find that in marriage, we will always marry the wrong person because no person can ever sustain that or fulfill that. So when marriage and love get defined from that self-fulfillment ethic, what we do is we completely divorce ourselves from the definition of love that we find in Scripture, all right? In Scripture, what we find is that God's love is patterned off of two things, initiation and sacrifice. Back to 1 John. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Okay, so in your marriage, you're not waiting for the other person to make the first move. Who makes the first move from in, in salvation? God, okay? He wasn't 
wringing his hands going, oh, is, is he going to love me, love me not? You know, is, is he going to do something good for me today? Is she going to respond? No, he just acts, okay? He acts. And this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. And so he takes the initiative, okay? He decides to take the responsibility for the broken situation that we created, and he decides to go over and beyond that alienation and to fix it, okay? It's very instructive for us, especially if we find ourselves in a challenging place with our spouse right now. It's just to say, hey, I'm going to step into this, I'm going to initiate, I'm going to go over the alienation, and I'm going to seek to overcome it, okay? And so this is the first part that we learned from 1 John 4 about what love is. It is initiating, okay? It's not just passive or receptive. And this indicates that the Bible's definition of love is not about self-fulfillment, okay? It's not primary how it makes you feel and, and, uh, and how that builds up your esteem, all right, so this is where it begins. The second thing that we find here is that it's also about sacrifice. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, this fills out the initiation. Okay, God wasn't waiting around for you to decide if you were going to love him. He decided to love you. And the way that he does that concretely is he sends Jesus into the world. Okay? And then Jesus pays enormous sacrifice, laying down his own life, despite being the one righteous man in the history of the world. He gives himself in our place in order to fill the gap that we could never fill for ourselves. Okay? And he gives us a righteous status in front of God. Okay? So it's an initiating love. God's not waiting around for us. And then God makes sacrifice for us in sending Jesus. Now, as you think about your marriage, it's important to recognize that we are all cultural creatures, okay? So we can talk about that ethic of self-fulfillment that exists in the culture, and we can talk bad about it and say bad things, but guess what? We, every one of us, are shaped by that in certain ways, okay? Because you are a cultural creature. You've been stewed in the pot. And so what's really critical for each of us is to be self-aware of that, to understand that. That we have been predisposed to understand love from self-fulfillment type of, uh, of, of position, of, of, of view, okay? And so as Christians, what we want to do is work back against that, to say no to the self-fulfillment ethic, and to say, God, teach me about this other ethic of initiation and sacrifice. And if you really want to know, the first thing that most couples need to hear is just to be rescued right there. Okay? How are you orienting your definition of love? And how are you exercising that? All right, and so this is, uh, this is where the gospel is so critical. Now, I want to give you a practical exercise because I said I wasn't just going to be theological. All right, and this is uh, probably a practical exercise some of you are familiar with, um, but I've never forgotten it. Two months before I got married, my father-in-law handed me a book, and he said, if I'd read this 25 years ago, my marriage would have been completely different and helped. He has a good marriage, Okay. But he said this was really helpful to him. And it was a book by a guy named Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. Now, let me say something about this book. It's not scientific, okay? It's not based on empirical research. 
But what he does is just has some general psychology and says that people tend to give and receive love in five different types of patterns. And I think you'll recognize these patterns, okay? The first love language that he talks about are words of affirmation. And so what he ends up saying is, look, you can't lock any person in on any one of these. He says, but we tend to orient to one or two, and it's about your family of origin and some different things like that, okay? Um, But this first one, words of affirmation, that some people really feel jonesed up. They feel really loved. Their cup is full when you say something kind and affirming to them, okay? Do you know people who like to receive words of affirmation, okay? Do all of us like some level of words of affirmation? Sure, you know, but for some people, it's primary. When they don't have it, they feel disconnected, okay? Words of affirmation, really important. Now, second one, quality time. Some people don't feel connected if you are not sitting next to them on the couch, maybe not even in a conversation, okay? Maybe you're surfing the internet and the quality time person over there is feeling absolutely disconnected because what they wanted to be doing is doing something together, even if it was watching a TV show, okay? Quality time people like to go on walks. They like to have conversations, okay? And when they don't get that, um, they are feeling somewhat unloved. Third, acts of service. Some people give and receive love by just simply doing things for you, okay? You'll recognize them because they're just always eager to find a way to help, okay? They typically stink at words of affirmation, okay? It's not their bag, but what you know is that they're really committed to you because they're always doing something for you, okay? Acts of service. Fourth, physical touch. This is where some people's cup really gets full. It can just be an arm around the shoulder. It can be a handhold, or it can, of course, be sexual intimacy. But it's just physical touch is really important to certain people. And the final one that Chapman develops is gifts. These are literally just physical, tangible gifts. You thought of me and did something thoughtful for me, and you purchased a gift. Now, what was so helpful for me uh, as a really young guy about to get married was putting some practicality to this big theological language that I gained about what it meant to love this other person. Because all of a sudden, I was staring into the frightful prospect of not just being able to talk about it. I was going to have to land the plane, you know, over and over again. I was going to need to know what exactly it looked like to love. And the most eye-opening thing, I told you last week that getting married for me was like upgrading from like a black and white television to a color with HD, you know? Um, I just uh, needed my horizons broadened. Um, But I began to understand that people worked differently and that my future spouse worked differently. She was a words of affirmation person. I was a quality time person. We could be speaking past one another without even anything happening. (laughs) It was amazing, okay? And anyone in relationship knows exactly what we're talking about. You can go right past one another and not anything bad has happened. You can feel disconnected. 
And so what Chapman does for us is just puts practical flesh on the bones for thinking about what does it mean to live in a way that initiates and sacrifices for our spouse. And, uh, and what we need to do is use tools like the five love languages to have curi curious conversations with our spouse, okay? Maybe you can do it this afternoon. This would be a great Sabbath activity. Ask the question, how full is your cup? Or that's Chapman's language. Uh, you know, how, <laughs> um, are you feeling loved by me? What are the things, you know, that I can do? Or maybe it's to go ahead straight to confession. I know that acts of service is what really does it. You know that that's the way you give love. And by the way, recognize this, the way people give love is the way they also like to receive love. Okay? And so if you live with someone who uh, really feels like they are fulfilled and they really feel connected to you um, when you hold their hand, guess the way that they're going to express their love to you. They're going to hold their hand. Maybe they'll just come and stand next to you a little closer, okay? Now, if you're a quality time person, are you necessarily thinking, man, that just does it? No. <laughs> but one of the things that you have to learn is you have to learn to translate that foreign language, okay? You've got to learn to receive that, and you've got to learn how to give that, okay? That's one of the things you can do for your spouse, okay? If they're a words of affirmation person and you don't find yourself particularly strong in that category, guess what? And I'm exhorting myself, get busy, okay? Get busy figuring out what it looks like, all right? And then also get ready to receive it that way because that's the way it's primarily going to come back to you, all right? And it's when we kind of take up that sort of ethic and that sort of approach that we find ourselves really connecting with our spouses, where we're initiating and sacrificing and laying down our life for them um, in these really practical things, right? So that's the first thing, uh, first question that we'll answer. What is definition of love? It's initiation and sacrifice. Second, what is the key to unity as two live together as one? Second chapter of the Bible has this, that the two are to become one flesh, it's the beautiful statement of marriage. We're told in Ephesians 5 that it's a great mystery that is a sign, and we'll get more into this, pointing to the relationship of Christ and the church. All wonderful, exalted stuff. And then you get into the raw reality of, uh, of married life, and it doesn't all look so romantic all the time. And you have to ask the really practical question, is how do we do that? How do two people, very different than one another, live together as one. One of the most disturbing things uh, in my years of premarital counseling is when couples come in and, um, and they're on the verge of getting married and I ask them about a conflict and they say, well, we don't really fight. And, uh, and it's with great delight that I then start to poke around. And I'm not trying to do it um, to, to be obnoxious, but it's just like, well, we just need to find the, the area, okay? And within two or three minutes, you can generally kind of knock one off and you say, well, you know, obviously you got some value differences there. You think this category is really important in the budget and you think this one is, and I can tell you where this is going. Um, you know, I mean, and you can get there really fast. 
Because the bottom line is you bring two very separate worlds into one household, and you're then working out life together. And no matter how similar and compatible you may be in personality, there will be conflict, okay? And for a lot of Christians, they experience that as a tremendous level of shame and failure. It's not that, okay? It can become that, but it just simply needs to be an invitation to do hard work, okay? Uh, As two sinners get married, what do you expect? Sparks, okay? That's what you can expect. Now, some people will express those sparks in different ways. That'll be kind of cold and icy, and uh, and other homes will be um, warm and... um, you know, full with uh, some argumentation. Um, But whatever your conflict style is, there will be conflict. And that's okay. You can expect that, and you just need to take it as invitation. And then we need to look at, well, how do we really do this two-in-one together? Philippians 2 is interesting. Once again, Paul speaking to the church broadly. But listen to what he says in verses 1 through 5. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So he's speaking about unity in the church. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's going to tell you how to do that one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So once again, when he's describing this attitude that we are to have, where does he go? To Jesus, okay? And so the ethic gets really steep once again and gets really challenging. And so what's the key to unity as two live together as one? Humility. He says it very plainly. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And guys, that is a daily task, and it's one that we need daily reorientation to. You know, it's the question each day, what am I going to do to pursue unity with my spouse? How am I going to work that out today? What does that mean today? Because is every day alike? It's not. Some days are more challenging. You know, we run a regular carpool service out of the Colson home, <laughs> getting people different places. You need to be here. Now that we have drivers, it's more like Melissa is a full-time scheduler, okay? Getting people to right spots with appointments and different things. And sometimes one of the most loving things I can do is to say, yeah, I will be there at that time to take care of this issue because I know the day has been full. Okay, but it's just asking those very practical questions of what does it look like to consider the interest of my spouse above my own that day. Okay, really, I mean, make it that concrete. Okay, it can be a part of your morning devotions. Okay, 
just as maybe you just gather yourself and say a quick prayer to God while you drive into work, but it is asking God, how can I love my spouse today? What does it mean for me to pursue unity uh, with him or her? And how can I work that out? All right? And guys, it needs to get that practical where you're just asking God, what does it mean to look past my own interest and to have this mind which belongs to me in Christ Jesus, where he laid aside himself for the interest of someone else, all right? So that's the key to two living together as one. It's just that simple, genuine humility that really plays out like self-sacrifice, which did I say I was gonna be repetitive? Yes, okay. Are you getting the message? Okay, good. God's got one really simple one here for us, all right? Uh, but that this initiating self-sacrificial love plays itself out in humility, which is putting the interest of someone else above your own, disadvantaging yourself to advantage somebody else. All right, third question. What is the path to personal self-fulfillment? It's interesting to look at the Gospel of Mark for this um, because we find this theme developed uh, across a couple of chapters. And so I wanted to take you to two places. But the first is in Mark 8, where Jesus is speaking about just what it means to follow him. Okay, so this is very general exhortation again, but in, in uh, really critical principles. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And when he says soul here, it's just, you could also just translate life, okay? And so what Jesus is speaking of is how you live a really self-fulfilled life, okay? And it's not seeking after your own interest. Rather, it's losing your life in the world's terms and living for something else. It's laying down your life in order to bear a cross. And the way this gets developed in the, in the Gospel of Mark in particular, it means that our definition of self-fulfillment is not the world's definition of self-fulfillment and happiness. That that self-actualization at the top of Maslow's Tri uh, triangle and pyramid, we would define that very, very differently, okay? That's not just about personal psychological conviction and happiness. No, rather, our definition of self-fulfillment is bearing a cross, is participating in uh, sharing and bringing God's love into the world that's been shown to us in Jesus. And that works out in a very intense and primary way in our homes, Okay? with our spouse, with our children, okay? and it bleeds out from there. But the household becomes the primary kind of invasion point, you could say, uh, for most people who are sharing in, uh, in married life. This is where the love of God and the bearing of the cross really takes up primary importance. And so we lay down our lives. Now then, Jesus has interesting things to say in Mark 10 as the disciples kind of squabbled about who was most important amongst them. He says this, he says, you know that those uh, who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." 
Now, when Jesus answers the question of greatness, he gives a very peculiar answer, that the greatest one among you serves. He does something similar in John's gospel where he talks about his glory. And he talks about falling into the ground, the, the seed falling into the ground and dying in order to bear fruit. And you know what the next thing Jesus is doing right after he says those things in John 12? He goes to John 13 and Jesus is kneeling down and washing the disciples' feet. And John's saying something interesting to us there, that this is Jesus' glory. This is exactly where his greatness is, is taking on the task of a servant, right? And guys, what we have to do is work really hard is to reorient and redirect ourselves that that is greatness. We live in a culture that defines greatness in a very different way. And as we've said, we are all boiled in that pot, okay? And so the task for us is to undo that and unwind it. And that greatness inside of your marriage is laying down your life for your spouse. It is bearing a cross for them. Sometimes that means being incredibly patient, means being long-suffering, it means enduring with them. It means serving them and helping them. And this will take on many different roles and many different uh, aspects as you go through the course of life, okay? The one thing um, that became incredibly uh, important for me was after a couple of years of marriage, um, I felt like I, I had it down. I'm, I imagine Melissa would disagree uh, vociferously, and I know I didn't. But what really wakened me to the fact that I didn't was when we started having children. Because what it meant to love my wife took on many different definitions, right? There was now somebody screaming in the middle of the night that I needed to help with, all right? And if I didn't help, then I wasn't actually loving her well. That matures now and changes as our life stages change. And that changes down through ages as you move towards death, okay? And so to constantly be asking the question of what does it mean for me to bear my cross? What does it mean to sacrificially love and initiate and in humility to put the interest of this other person ahead of my own? What does that look, for, look like for me in this particular stage of life on this particular day? Because honestly, in the marriage counseling that I've done over the past 20 years of pastoral ministry, one of the really critical things that I've noticed is when people stop asking those questions as they transition through the stages of life, okay? It is the transitions that kill people, the transition to having children, the transition to being empty nest, the transition into just more mature senior life, it's these transitions that just absolutely kill people. And it's not necessarily that they are divorced, but they're just functionally cohabitating. Guys, that's no better, really. We don't want to just be preserving the institution of marriage. We want to be preserving vital marriages. And the way that God lays out for us to do so is with these type of inverted gospel principles where we're seeking to initiate and sacrifice, where we're seeking to be humble and live in the interest of someone else. 
And we have a definition of self-fulfillment that involves laying down our lives, that we actually find our fullest sense of self when we identify with Jesus and give ourselves to God and his kingdom. That's what God says the way to fulfillment is. And he invites us to embrace that and to embrace that kind of life, that big kind of life. And so that's what he's inviting us to today. Next week, we're going to continue to chase and pursue some of these themes uh, about marriage. We still have a long ways to go. Uh, But this gets us into the broad mystery, okay, of what it means to have a healthy, vital, and successful marriage. Let me pray for us. Father, we do ask that you help us. These commands that you give us are steep, and we feel the tensions in our own hearts. We know that we're turned in upon ourselves and that love is not our native language. You've taught us to love, though, because we've been loved by Jesus. And so help us to move towards our spouse and to other people in that same self-sacrificial way. And so on these basis, build up the marriages in our own community. And may that be witness to the world, just in the integrity and the wholeness that fills the homes of the people of Christ Church. Bless us in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.